Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. To be a good leader, you've got to know your people. But what about knowing yourself? Emotional intelligence is more important than ever in connecting with a diverse and changing workforce. So should it be considered when picking the leaders of tomorrow? That's the stance of Bob Tobias, retired professor from American University's Key Executive Leadership Program. He tells Federal News Network's Eric White just how vital emotional intelligence is for succeeding as a leader. My experience is that emotional intelligence is a critical ingredient for every leader's success, and particularly members of the senior executive service. And the five existing OPM executive core qualifications, um, the ability to lead change, the ability to lead people, the ability to be results-driven and exhibit business acumen and build coalitions does not include emotional intelligence. OPM assumes that if you're successful with these five particular existing core qualifications and you reach your goals and objectives, that you automatically have emotional intelligence. But that's just not the case. It's I don't believe it's the case because the training for SES leaders doesn't include, for the most part, emotional intelligence. And the 3,000 students I've talked to over my 23 years at American University and asked them point blank, if these if leaders are successful with the five skill core qualifications, are they guaranteed to be successful as a member of the SES? And the answer unanimously was no. And what they say is missing is emotional intelligence. I believe that's the glue that's necessary to be fully successful over an extended period of time as an SES leader. Gotcha. Okay. And so, you know, if you are one of these leaders who find yourself not really feeling the connection with your employees, and it could be your lack of emotional intelligence, is there a way to start training your mind a little bit better to be more adept at what folks are feeling and how to reach people on a personal level? Well, the critical component that having emotional intelligence gives a leader is the ability to connect with the people they lead, the ability to engage with the people that they lead. And there's absolutely no no question about the fact that if I am willing, if I am able to engage with the people I lead, they will be pro- more productive in achieving my goals and objectives. And emotional intelligence is really personal development. What it means is that I have the ability to manage both my own emotions and understand the emotions of the people I'm trying to lead. And the five key elements of emotional intelligence are self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. Now, these personal development uh, characteristics can occur when um, candidate development programs include the development of emotional intelligence. 
So there are actually programs out there already that look to improve that, but maybe they don't necessarily call themselves, you know, emotional, emotional intelligence workshops or anything like that. Well, I mean, where I taught at American University in the key executive leadership program, we focused on emotional intelligence. Most programs, candidate development programs, do not include it because it's not required by OPM. It's not something that's that fits within the five executive core qualifications, so it's not generally available. And why do you think that is? Because it's hard. Number one, it's a challenge to for it's a challenge for people to rethink the way they are engaging with others, so it's very challenging. But I think it's basically that OPM doesn't requirement, it, so programs don't include it. And so that's why I believe OPM ought add emotional intelligence to the current list of executive core qualifications to insist that it be taught in candidate development programs. We're speaking with retired professor Bob Tobias from American University's key leadership executive program. So, you know, let's say OPM did add it. Um, how would you go about measuring that as an aspect or a qualification for entering into an SES program? I think it would be hard, but I think it can be done. And the reason it would be hard is because tests um, are hard to create that aren't in some ways biased. There are many tests that are on the market that are very good as guidance for how people can develop their emotional intelligence, but to use it as a criteria for, for selection would be hard. But I think it's really necessary because the results are so clear. And the results are the more engagement that I have with those I lead, the more productive they are and the more satisfied the public is with the services that are delivered. Yeah. And you'd have to find a good judge of character to dish out those judgments, right? Because if you don't have emotional intelligence, it's really hard to tell if someone else does. Well, as I say, there are there are many um, evaluations on the market to measure emotional intelligence that people use um, to gauge where they are. So, for example, if uh, most of these you uh, 360, 360 degree of evaluations can measure the level of emotional intelligence. But as I say, they're not used for selection. So um, they're only used for self-improvement. So if I receive this 360 evaluation, if I choose, I can ignore it or I can act on what's in the evaluation. Now, to make that part of the selection process, they'd have to be refined. But I think it's so necessary because the results are so necessary to be successful over the long term. It speaks to the importance of emotional intelligence, because if you're a leader who doesn't necessarily have the same amount of skill sets that your employees have or your the, your cohorts have, you know, I'm thinking about just breaking it down into simple terms that owner of a restaurant doesn't necessarily know how to work the cash register, but most employees are okay with that as long as their manager respects and understands the tasks that they have at hand. Not only knows the tasks and understands the tasks, but has the ability to create the trust necessary for the re relationship between the leader and the lead. If I can create 
trusting relationships with those I lead, if I can create collaborative relationships with those I lead, I never have to to use the cash register. I can always trust the person who's doing it to do a good job. And the old carrot and the stick. And in this case, you're not necessarily using the carrot or the stick. You're sharing the carrot with your employee, right? (laughs) I think that's right. I think that's right, Eric. Bob Tobias is a retired professor from American University, speaking there with Federal News Network's Eric White. You can find this interview on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era 
thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.